Welcome to the Heart of Rural America podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Radke, an American cattle rancher and motivational speaker, raising my kids and writing children's books in South Dakota. There's a David and Goliath story unfolding in agriculture today. And I don't know about you, but my money is on the underdog, the hardworking folks who value faith, family, freedom, and their farming communities. This show will highlight the untold stories of these resilient and determined families who I have the great pleasure of meeting in my travels across this nation as an agricultural speaker. It is my hope that their stories will remind us to live with great courage because we are not alone in this fight to keep producers on the land and meet dairy and eggs on the dinner table. Now let's hit the dusty trail together as we uncover the heart of rural America. Welcome to your show. Here's my mom, Manda Waki. Welcome to another episode of the Heart of Rural America podcast, the show where we highlight great people I get to meet along the dusty trail in my travels. Today's guest is a really interesting one. I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation. John Bolin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's great to, to be here on your uh, new podcast. It's, it's great what you're doing. Well, thank you. And we're matching in denim today, which is yeah. fun. Um, but, but I, I got to say, when we first met, you looked a little different. We met in 2019 at a movie premiere in Black Hills of South Dakota. Paxton County was the movie. And when I originally met you that day, you had a full-fledged long beard. And by the end, at the movie premiere, you were like clean and polished so I guess maybe let's talk a little bit about your life as the bearded man. <laughs> what, were, what were you doing at that chapter of your life? Well, you know, my background was, you know, in law enforcement. All, most of my adult life, I was in law enforcement at, in some some capacity. I always had, when I was in uniform, you know, the and probably about half of my career, I was a uniformed officer and the other half I was in plain clothes or undercover, so no uniforms. Sorry, there's flies buzzing around here. Um, if, if you see me waving my hand, I'm not trying to get help. I'm swatting flies. You might need help by the end of this. I'm, I might. But um, anyway, that so I got into this thing of after having so many years of, of being clean shaven when in uniform, I just decided I wasn't going to shave anymore. And it, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because – I was really proud of that beard that, <laughs> you know, it takes a while for a man to grow a beard that, that looks that good. Well, that's why it was shocking that like by the end of the day, it was gone. Yeah. Just yeah. Like... So, so what happened was I, which I, I do once in a while because we won't get into my age, but you know, a beard will age me because my beard comes in completely gray. Sometimes I'll get up and look in the mirror and, and wonder who the old man in the mirror is. And I'll just, I'll just shave it off. And that that was um, being out there in, in South Dakota for that premiere and stuff. I thought, well, I, I had been told that I might have the opportunity to speak to the group there. And, and I thought that I should look presentable. So I, I shaved it off. It wasn't an undercover thing, you know, where I was trying to change my identity this time. It well, was... I, I'm so gullible. <laughs> I literally thought this whole time you like, had something going on in the day, you cleaned the case, and, you, and then you came to the movie premiere. But no, that wasn't the case. 
That, not not this time. Not on that trip. No. You know, you're but, probably busted. You probably told me that that night, and I'm so gullible. I was probably like, "Wow, he busted a drug deal I, in the <laughs> afternoon in time for the movie premiere." That, that's funny. That's <laughs> funny. No, those those days were far behind me by then. Okay, so you were undercover. Yeah. Like, busting yeah. drug cartel. Like, tell it's just interesting. Um, tell me what you did. Yeah. Um. No. I. Well. I did drug interdiction for a couple of years when I was on a, a city police department um, here in Indiana. And then that that experience really is what opened the door to a state level job that was strictly undercover. And there was 16 of us uh, that covered the entire state. So I was very fortunate to get one of those 16 positions for the entire state of Indiana. And I covered the central Indiana area, Indianapolis and surrounding counties. And that was illegal gambling was was really the main thing that we investigated there. The the drug investigations were if if we did come across some type of illegal drug activity during the course of, of our investigations into the illegal gambling, we would refer that to the state police or someone that had that was doing that specifically. But what we mainly focused on was RICO. Uh, which has been in the news a lot lately. It was it's racketeer influenced corrupt organizations and and gambling is one of the predicate crimes that falls under the category of RICO. So I did those type of invest, investigations and also during that that period of time that that seven to eight year period of time that I worked for the state in that capacity I was also tasked to the United States Marshals Service as a, what they called a fugitive task force officer. So I was sworn in as a U.S. Marshal and had the, the same power and authority as, as any other U.S. Marshal, uh, but I was still a, technically a state employee. It's kind of, kind of hard to explain, but so I, I also hunted high-level fugitives undercover. And so you would just go and be amongst them and be one of them, kind of? Is that basically how it in in some cases, uh, we would have to try to get close to some of the people that that um, we knew could possibly be in contact with the fugitive. So yeah, we would go into some pretty shady places sometimes in in that capacity. So I have a wide audience, all walks of life, that listen to this, but I feel like there's lessons to be learned from an undercover criminal investigator. Like how how did you learn? to read people and kind of keep a poker face and to, I guess, what advice would you, how can you apply this to real life? Because I'm certain you do it still today. Yeah. You know, the most important thing is, is training mm -hmm. and preparation. You have to be constantly aware of, of your surroundings, constantly aware of the individuals that you're investigating or that you're, that you're hunting for if they're fugitive. It's just a matter of, knowing your enemy really and whatever that takes and it take you know a lot of times i would i would investigate someone every single aspect of that person about uh, their life if, if they were a criminal target if mm -hmm. i had a reason to believe that that they had committed a crime and it would justify me to open up an investigation then i would learn and i you know i'm not, I'm not unique in this a lot of uh, good investigators conduct themselves this way, but I, I do feel like maybe I did dig a little deeper sometimes than others would, but I, I would know everything about them that I possibly could learn before I ever had any kind of contact with them. 
you know, that was just mainly for officer safety, but it was also for being able to question them to interview or interrogate an individual after making contact and know enough about them for them to understand that you're serious, that, that you do, you know what you're talking about. And so I feel like in life or politics or business, yeah, that applies doing your research, understanding who you're working for friend and foe. And maybe I always think if you lose the emotional game, you've lost the debate or you've lost the battle and, and like conversations with, trolls on the internet or dealing with political things. So it's, you, you're very like, you can, you can keep it in check. And I, I admire that you're, you're hard to read. And I, but I think that's a a good trait for just life in general that. Yeah, it is. Thank you for that. I, I, that's a compliment. And it, it's, it's a double-edged sword really to be perfectly honest with you because being hypervigilant all the time uh, becomes exhausting. The Heart of Rural America is presented to you by my dear friends at CK6 Consulting, a cattle business consulting service with a purebred Angus focus. I recently joined the CK6 crew, and I would love to connect with you at an upcoming sale. Check out the sale calendar at ck6consulting.com to learn more about opportunities to invest in elite Angus genetics coming from our progressive and innovative clients who truly exemplify what it means to be the heart of rural America. And for all your semen needs, visit ck6source.com, an online stud service that features some of our clients' top performing bulls. Give Chris Earle, Wes Teeman, Cody Fleeman, or myself a call with any questions or business inquiries you may have. CK6 is all about families helping families, and I'm so proud and grateful to be a part of it. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, your next chapter of life. You get out of the undercover world, out of your career in law enforcement. Where do you go next? Well, I have to do a little bit of the backstory on that to, to connect the dots. But during my time working for the state of Indiana, um, investigating illegal gambling, and any crime that any uh, criminal enterprise that survived off of illegal gambling is the way I like to word it. The director was contacted by the Humane Society of the United States, also known as HSUS, and was asked if our department would, would be willing to investigate some animal fighting cases. They tied together the gambling nexus with the animal fighting, which is, is true, Animal fighting wouldn't be, really wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the gambling and the the money that can be made on it. The information that they had was that there was an individual in Indiana that that was an international cockfighting person. He was raising cockfighting roosters for international shipping to, he was shipping them to the Philippines to be specific. And he had property in the Philippines and family in the Philippines, but it, the Humane Society of the United States got a hold of that information and then recruited us to investigate that, us being the Indiana Gaming Commission. And that particular case exposed, uh, not until it went to trial, these flies are terrible. They're getting... They're crashing the show. Yeah, they're getting right on the, the camera. They want They want to be on camera. I guess we shouldn't leave the door open so much here in the country. 
uh, yeah. story of my life with four children. I'm like, yeah. we don't live in a barn. Shut the door. We live right. very close to being in a barn, but for some reason, I don't want the flies moving in with me. Yeah, same here. <laughs> but anyway, even with that distraction there. So anyway, to fast forward, I there, there's more, and 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 I can come back on sometime and talk about more in depth um, a lot of the different parts of how I ended up being involved in that world. But anyway, the HSUS was one of the one of the national animal rights organizations that was looking at this stuff and then there was <laughs> this is getting funny no, the, the animal rights activists are the flies well, that's true <laughs> they, they just never stop they never, here they are over here too there okay. they are they're they're sending their little fly drones in here yeah yeah we found out during the, during the trial of that case that to make a long story short i i was able to infiltrate that that case that individual and I was able to obtain enough information that we, we got a search warrant and we went and took down the operation. And the HSUS was the expert witness on the case. I didn't know anything about the world of animal fighting prior to that. So I learned on the fly, <laughs> no pun intended, from HSUS how to investigate those things. That case ended up going to trial, and during the trial, the defense attorney brought information forward that the person that was advising me had actually been a member of the ALF in the past. The ALF is the Animal Liberation Front. The Animal Liberation Front has been listed by the FBI as a domestic terrorist organization. So that was embarrassing that we had been working with this person all this time, and we were we were supposed to be the law enforcement experts and basically this individual infiltrated us as a police department to get us to go investigate something. Now, you know, that being said, it was a crime. It had a gambling nexus. And so justifiably it, it should have been investigated, but the involvement of this animal rights group shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, should have been vetted better. So fast forward, we, we, we quit working with the HSUS, and, but we were still, we were really kind of getting involved in a lot of animal fighting cases by then, um, including dog fighting cases. And so we began working with the ASPCA, the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like, it seemed like that their group wasn't quite as radical as the HSUS folks. And I decided um, after speaking with a lot of these individuals and talking to them, uh, working with them uh, on a lot of the, the different animal fighting cases that I would wrap up my law enforcement career early and go to work for them. And they offered me, they offered me a lot of money and mm -hmm. it was good pay. It was excellent benefits. It was a matching 401k savings, uh, everything, you know, that, that a, a law enforcement officer would hope to find at the end of his career is Can't another to drive right like all the bills yeah. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yep so my title i went to work for them my title was investigator and they use a lot of police terminology they use a lot of stuff that to try to make people believe that they're law enforcement agencies but they're not they're nonprofit organizations with zero law enforcement power whatsoever but they recruit law enforcement they they hired me and made and my title was northeast investigator so I covered the northeast part of the country, Pennsylvania, all the way north to Maine and, and down the East Coast, New York, and that area was my was my area to work. 
I also train law enforcement officers. I, I train them using the ASPCA's curriculum, basically, and traveled all over the country training police officers in so-called animal cruelty investigations. Okay, pause on that. Yeah. ASPCA, mm -hmm. the animal rights organization with more money than God that right. recognizes that money to take producers off the land and to mm -hmm. wear private property rights and our ability to own animals. Right. They are training law enforcement. Oh, absolutely. Training and, and, and recruiting law enforcement to come to work for them. This, you know, that was the case with me. Cool. But the, the HSUS has a law enforcement training division and they train, they train more police officers throughout the country than the ASPCA does. I can uh, verify that as fact because HSUS was in Mitchell, South Dakota doing that exact same thing within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I was there for a few years and, and I realized throughout my time there that there were a lot of things going on behind closed doors, a lot of things that they were portraying themselves as, cert as a certain way to the general public. They were talking about how many animals they were helping and rescuing, among a lot of other things that they were doing that, that from, from my perspective and my experience was shady and borderline criminal mm -hmm. and violations of people's constitutional rights. And I began to speak up about it. And it came to a point where I realized that they were going to try to find a way to get rid of me. They were going to try to use me as a scapegoat in some capacity. I was wise enough to see that coming because I was resisting them. Mm -hmm. And these, these people have such an elitist mentality. They think that they are smarter than everyone else. They think that they are God's gift to animal life all over the world. They think that they're here. It's almost, it, it's really an obsessive narcissistic borderline psychotic type of mentality that they have. They think that they're doing something to save animals that it becomes its own religion. It does. It does. It that's exactly what it becomes. Mm -hmm. And so I resigned in, in December of, of 2017, I resigned from that job and I had no job to go to just before Christmas and, and winter time in Indiana. And, but I had had, I had had enough. I was so sick with the, contradiction and the hypocrisy and, and, and the stuff that I saw going on. So I resigned. And, and when I resigned, I, I asked for an exit interview and they denied my exit interview. They wouldn't give me an explanation of why they denied my exit interview. I had not had any write-ups, any kind of disciplinary action taken against me. So for me to resign and then ask for an exit interview and be denied was just really weird. I didn't get my exit interview and I, I was going to just move on and with my life. And I started to think, no, there's a reason why I experienced the things I experienced mm -hmm. and I'm going to share this. And the, the blessing in disguise, as, as some people will say, sometimes when we think that the world's turned upside down and we don't know what we're going to do, then there's a purpose. God, God puts us where he wants us when he wants us. Yep. And when I started into law enforcement at the age of 19 as a County deputy, here in Indiana, I never had any idea whatsoever that I would end up where I am today as a result of my law enforcement experience, which led me to work for the ASPCA, the largest animal rights organization in the country, and that this country boy from Indiana would end up in New York City and working for this kind of an organization. But 
it, it was all for a purpose. And so the exit interview is where they have you sign a non-disclosure agreement, basically a gag order. They'll bribe you with a big severance package and say, now sign on the dotted line and keep your mouth shut. You don't talk about what we do or how we do it or anything like that. So I didn't get offered that and didn't sign one. So I, I was free to speak and share the truth as much as I wanted to. So I, I set up an undercover account on Twitter and started tweeting stuff out. And then I got contacted by a couple of different individuals and, and ended up being contacted by Trent Luce. Mm-hmm. And Trent offered that to have me on his show, Rural Route Radio. Mm-hmm. And the first time that I went on his show, we had a discussion, obviously, beforehand. I told him that I'm, I was not going to mention who I worked for because I was terrified that they were going to sue me. Yeah. And, and I, I had seen how they did, how they did those things, how they, they would tie people up in legal stuff. And, and there's no way you can fight a billion dollar industry mm-hmm. when you're just a former cop from Indiana. The Heart of Rural America is presented in part by Lynn's Heritage Angus and Meats by Lynn's. Founded in 1963 as a Chicago neighborhood butcher shop, and growing to an international supplier of high-quality beef in the white tablecloth space, Meats by Linz is a four-generation family-owned business. The Linz Heritage Angus program was developed to allow for greater control of the end product, a focus on using elite Angus genetics while also managing the feed, environment, age, and weight of the cattle, allows Fred Linz and his crew the ability to source the very best beef produced from the heart of their Angus program meeting and exceeding the needs of their customers worldwide. Discover more at lindsheritageangus.com and shop for beef at shoplinds.com. Use code AMANDA20 to save 20% on your next beef purchase. That's a pretty sweet deal, my fellow beef lovers. Working cattle can be stressful at times, but the job is made so much easier with equipment that is safe, strong, and simply designed. I highly recommend Real Tough Livestock Equipment for all your working facility needs. We just installed the Deluxe Chute at Radkeyland and Cattle, and it has been an absolute game changer as we run cows through our chute during AI season. It's durable and easy to use, and it's made to last a lifetime. Real Tough offers a wide range of products, including calving barns, panels, loading chutes, tubs, alleys, and portable working systems. Manufactured in the U.S. of A., Real Tough is family-owned and operated. Their commitment to helping farm and ranch families truly exemplifies what this show is all about. Learn more at realtough.com, that's T-U-F-F, and be sure to tell them Amanda sent you to receive an extra bonus with your order. Let's get you some iconic green Real Tough equipment headed your way. I promise you're going to love it. You've said that they could stop getting donations tomorrow and they could still operate for the next 30 years, correct? Without Yeah, it it was something like that. But I yeah, that was that was when I they flew me to New York for my week long orientation and I asked one of the other people that, that was working there that had been there for a while that was out there for the training or whatever. I said, This is amazing that how much money these people have and how can they afford to pay all these salaries and the brand new Ford truck that they gave me for equipment, a big trailer that they gave me and a, 
a credit card with a $10,000 a month credit limit to buy the supplies that I needed. And he said, I was told that that they have enough money now in savings and, and there's even, they have money in offshore accounts also. It's been verified. Uh, the information's available online. He said, I was told that donations could end today and they could operate just like they are now for, for 20 or 30 years. Wow. I forget what the exact number was. but Describe the building too. So if people aren't familiar, ASPCA is the one with the Sarah McLaughlin commercials where the dogs yeah. Cats are like crying on the screen. Oh yeah, yeah. For nineteen ninety nine a month, you can save the little yeah. kids. Everything, and- everything that they do is based on emotion. Yeah, they they want an emotional response from people. Which it's okay. So that is why this podcast was created because I tell people all the time we can't fight these people by just spouting off the research mm-hmm. that we have. We can't, right. which we are logical people and we have sound science to justify everything that we do. But until people see what our heart is, we're, we're not even playing the same game. I mean, they're, right. they're still not following the rules and codes of ethic of the cowboy, of course, the animal rights activists, but they mm-hmm. are so good at preying on people's emotions. And if Absolutely. they only knew the people that they were hurting, which is you and I, which is people mm-hmm. in rural America. It's the yeah. only way we can change the course of direction because the, these donors are well-intentioned people. They they have big hearts and they want to help and make a difference. Mm-hmm. They just, they've just been conned. They they frankly yeah. wasted their money, and it's, Absolutely. it's terrifying. It's it's crazy. Yeah, and that's a lot of the reason why law enforcement agencies get so caught up in it too, because. You know, law enforcement, especially now more than ever, you know, when I started in 1989, uh, there were still people, people still respected law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate to, to have mentors when I started that, that had been there since the 60s and 70s in law enforcement. And you're talking about old school cops there, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, get, I just got derailed a little bit. But getting back to your, to your original question about what it was like. In, at the ASPCA, they have their main headquarters in Manhattan. I mean, they literally own like a city block. So, I mean, it, it's you're talking about billions and billions of dollars worth of assets and billions and billions of dollars worth of donations coming into them. The CEO made a million dollars last year. It's downright evil. It's it's crazy. But that that brings us to what you're doing now. And I, I, I want to wrap in the next five minutes here. So I don't want to rush yeah. you. You're going to have to come back, I think. Yeah, that's, that's I understand. Yeah. So, so now you are the owner at Area Consulting, correct? So it stands for um, Animal Rights Extremist Awareness. Is that what well, you're what that was. That okay. was. I, I, did, I did create that LLC. Okay. But I scrapped it. Okay. I'll tell you why. Okay. It just... The more I try to promote myself as a consultant, the more I felt myself slipping back into to something that I didn't want to be a part of. Okay. You know, there's so many so-called consultants on both sides of this fight. Yeah. And I didn't want to paint myself into a corner. Yeah. So I made the decision that I would just dissolve that. And, okay. you know, after ordering a thousand business cards, I just threw them in the trash. that's called discernment from the lord though it is it is it's your path yeah so now i i do go out and speak anytime i'm invited i go speak i just i just got back from pennsylvania i was invited out to speak for the pennsylvania federation of dog clubs out there and there were some some individuals there from pennsylvania state government there was an individual there from 
U.S. Congress. And they're all like-minded individuals. But I go out now and I, I speak about animal rights extremism awareness from a law enforcement perspective and from an inside perspective. I was at a very high level within the ASPCA. So, I mean, I was actually, I drafted their undercover policies and procedures uh, just before they got scrapped. Their, their policies and procedures got scrapped, um, and that's something for another time. Uh, but that was as a result of me speaking out about it uh, while I still work there. But yeah, so to, to sum it up, that's, that's what I do now. I feel like it's my duty. I feel like I have an obligation and a duty. Why did I experience the things I experienced? Why did I get inside of that organization and then leave and not have to sign a non-disclosure? Well, it's because um, I need to share the truth. I need to speak about these individuals and these organizations and, and how much of a danger that they, they pose to our freedom. They pose a, a serious danger to this country's freedom, to, to rural Americans' right to raise animals. And the difference between animal welfare and animal rights uh, needs to be clearly drawn, the difference between those two things. So I, I work in construction in the construction industry. That's what I do to make my living. And once in a while, I, I will go speak for a group and share my experience. Um, so there, there are a lot of livestock producers that listen to this show. I guess just to close things out, can you tell, tell the listeners how these animal rights groups are attacking animal agriculture specifically and maybe give everyone a call to action of what to do to fight back? They're attacking every industry that has that's animal related and and the problem a couple of the problems that that we have in the animal world whether it be dog breeders circuses rodeos or cattle producers pork producers egg producers they're they're attacking all of us at the same time hunters fishermen trappers anything animal related even animals being used in in the movie industry yep. they're attacking all of it so my advice and really a plea because I've seen in the past six, what, six or so years now that I've been doing this, speaking out, I see the division within these industries. Mm -hmm. the, the industries that should be uniting and fighting against these animal rights people still have their own little divisions. We have to drop our egos, for God's sakes. Who, who's right or who's wrong in the animal industry doesn't really matter right now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's our common enemy. That's what matters. Our common enemy is the animal rights special interest groups, not just the animal rights, but the environmental folks also. Yeah. They, they're all working together to mm -hmm. steal our rights and control us. If they can control our food and our ability to raise our own animals or our ability to hunt and fish, if they can control that and they can make us hungry, then they, they, they assume they can control um, everything about our lives. And that's, that's their goal. To me, it, it's all summed up as a private property rights issue, which is yeah. the hill I die on. And I'm glad you mentioned the environmental extremists too. Mm -hmm. And it, it really is he who controls the land controls the food and who controls the food controls the people. And so the landowners in this country have a really great opportunity to be stewards of the land, but they have a great responsibility to fight for their private property rights. So that's animals, that's land, that's the clothes on your back, the food in your refrigerator. Absolutely. Any any government, any climate change, tyrannical regulations, any 
extremist groups that says cows should have citizenry or we shouldn't be able to own dogs or have circuses or rodeos or whatever it might be. It's, it's not that issue. It's the greater issue, which is freedom, liberty, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. I guess, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we could do another hour of this and we're going to have to on the next episode of the heart of rural America. So I'm Amanda Radke with John and We'll see you on the dusty trail, John. Have a good day. Thank you for tuning into the show. If you found value in the message, I would be so grateful if you would subscribe and share to help spread the word. Until next time we meet on the dusty trail, I'm Amanda Radke, and this is the heart of rural America.